Good evening and welcome back to the Silmarillion Film Project. This is session number one of season six of the Silm Film Project. We are extremely excited about this, not only because it is a new... I was about to say a new year and a new... It's not totally not a new year. It's the same year it was when we finished season five, but it's a new season. And not only is this any old new season, this is the season we have been waiting for. This is the season that we finally get to do the Baron and Luthien story. Um, we've been anticipating this for a long time. Uh, for several years, I was thinking season five was going to be the Baron Luthien season, but then we divided what had been going to be season four into two seasons, um, which was prudent. Uh, and, and then, uh, but now we're done uh, with those. We uh, finished up at the Dagor Bragalach at the end of season five, and we are ready for the aftermath of the Dagor Bragalach. Of course, the Baron and Luthien story is going to be the primary centerpiece of season six, the central story of season six, but there's a lot of other things to figure out. So um, we will do that in a second. I am joined this evening by Nick Palazzo and Marie Prosser, the two, our two uh, lead writers here on Silm Film. Dave Kale, my co-host, couldn't make it this evening. Uh, he might be able to pop in later. Um, but um, uh, but I know he's, uh, you know, he, he did a Baron and Luthien reading at his wedding. So, you know, Dave is, uh, is uh, going to be excited uh, to be talking about Baron and Luthien this season. Um, so first, before we get uh, before I get too far in and forget myself, though, just a couple quick announcements. First thing I wanted to announce is that this coming Tuesday, December 7th, I'm holding a special session. It's a special open house session designed for homeschoolers and homeschooling families. Signum Academy uh, is our children's program. Well, K through 12 program. Um, high schoolers don't like to be called children, of course. Uh, and we have a lot of high schoolers in our program. But um, in our K through 12 program, we, we have our extracurricular clubs program. And we're also doing some language programs with schools as well. Um, and I wanted to basically have a discussion with homeschooling families to find out more about the kinds of, of, of needs and desires that they have that we might be able to, uh, to, to meet with Signum Academy. I believe that the Signum Academy has a lot to offer to homeschoolers. I think that we could do some really cool and fun things together. And I would just love to, to kind of talk with folks and see what are some what are what are the things that homeschoolers would most need and be most interested in um, and then see see what we could do and and uh, uh, you know how we might be able to help to meet some of those needs um, we will uh, be there will be presents for all uh, who come. I'm going to be giving 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 gifts uh, to those who attend. Um, so I would just ask uh, folks who are listening uh, if you uh, homeschool yourself, you know your own kids, or uh, you know you have friends who homeschool to kind of spread the word. Um, the, if you go to our signumuniversity.org website and scroll down a little bit on that first page, uh, you'll see a, an upcoming events uh, bar, and there's a there's a a big panel right there, the first one uh, for this session. And on that page is a Zoom link where you can register uh, for the sessions. I'm not going to be broadcasting it. It's just going to be a private meeting. Um, but I'd love to uh, hear folks. I'm looking forward to uh, talking about homeschooling and homeschooling needs. And the other thing is that um, 
the other thing is our space program. Our space program has officially launched this week. Is our first ever week of modules. Our December modules are running this week. All of them have begun. Uh, uh, it's been awesome. We've got 44 students who are participating in this very first month. Uh, our, our inaugural set of modules. And next week we're going to be announcing our. We're going to be confirming our next set of modules. So we'll be announcing uh, for sure the modules that are definitely running in January, and we will be also announcing the candidate list for February. So that's going to be happening early next week. Um, great fun at space. We've had a, a, a huge um, response. Uh, we've, we already have, uh, uh, and we've sold 120 tokens already. And uh, so if you want to uh, get involved in our new continuing education program, our new awesome fun courses. Uh, you should uh, buy a token and then you can, or multiple tokens, um, buy them for friends. Uh, it's uh, really, they're fun to give away. Um, so anyway, uh, I encourage you to do that. SignumUniversity.org/space. All right, those are my announcements for today. So here's what we're going to do today. Baron and Luthien, of course, is our main story. What we're doing now, for those of you who don't remember, like, for those of you like me, who don't remember uh, what happens at the beginning of a season, because it's been so long, um, it was notably March of 2020 when we started season five. Uh, so it has been exactly a pandemic ago that we, um, uh, that we started a new uh, season. Uh, so just to remind folks about what's happening here. So the first goal is just to kind of get ourselves oriented and think through kind of the major organizational issues. The real first question is, what do we include? What do we not include? Right. You know, what exactly are we going to cover? And then how are we going to cover it? What are some of the major priorities we want to do? Um, are there things that we want to um, that we want to bring in? Are there things that we want to push back? Um, how are we going to want to organize this? And then, of course, we also need to be starting to think through some issues that are going to be challenging, like you know, just to kind of anticipate and think through some important questions that are going to arise, so that we're not just kind of you know get halfway through and then realize, oh, wait a second, we didn't think about that. So that's that's what we're going to be doing in this this, this first few episodes before we get into working our way through the story in detail. So, um, as you can see on the slide, of course, this, we're, this season is completely different from anything that we've ever done. I mean, we have just gotten finished essentially with of Balerian and its realms, which we've been covering for like the last two years. And it's not that there isn't a lot in of Balerian and its realms, right? But there is not a lot of really close narrative, not a very great deal of character development. Um, and there's a lot of stuff, a lot of characters we've had to invent, a lot of storylines that we have created in order to touch on uh, Tolkien themes and in order to kind of connect the dots and, and kind of bring some of these things to life. Some of the things that in the narrative form of the Silmarillion are just kind of glanced over because, of course, the Silmarillion is written in this, you know, historical, chronicle kind of, you know, much of it anyway, uh, from that very kind of distant perspective. Um, what I, you know, in other broadcasts have uh, sort of semi-jokingly called uh, the plot summary genre uh, that uh, Tolkien kind of really got into. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I, okay. 
I'll digress enough just to tell this story very briefly. But that's actually how the Silmarillion started. Like, the Silmarillion as we know it got started when Tolkien had written his um, alliterative Turin, Turin Bar poem, and he was giving it to a friend to read. Um, one of his uh, one of his colleagues, actually. So some and because you may remember, he wrote his poem in like the alliterative, like like old English alliterative meter. And so he gave it to a, a an Anglo-Saxonist colleague uh, to to read. But he realized that you know it's kind of a little bit out of the blue, and there's a lot of you know the mythology and background story that's kind of not explained uh, in the Turin story. And so he started writing him a plot summary um, to summarize the mythology of his whole thing. And as has happened a number of times in Tolkien's career, he ended up getting completely carried away writing the plot summary. And the plot summary that he started writing for his friend to contextualize the Turin story literally became the Silmarillion. It became the first version, um, the Quentin Olderinwa, as he called it, back in 1930. And then he went back and revised it. So this whole, like, yeah, like, he started to dig the plot summary genre. Um, But anyway, it gives us issues because when we're trying to do to plan a TV show and to write dialogue and uh, develop characters and, and you know have continuous uh, you know continuous action um, there are some pretty big holes in most of the Silmarillion storylines from that point of view not so the Baron and Luthien story <laughs> and uh, although we've 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 all of us who have been working on this project um, have cherished the opportunity uh, to have those moments. I, I mean, I know, I know you guys uh, who are involved in the scripts always enjoy this, but I know I, as a reader, always look forward to those moments when you know, we're, you're writing a script, you're writing a script, and then all of a sudden, like, Tolkien's words pop out, right? And we get this, like, dialogue, which is straight from the text. Um, and it's always, it's always so much fun. There's, it's like uh, all of a sudden, like, the reverb comes on, you know, and I, you, you, you feel that, you know, Tolkien's uh, words resonating there. Um, well, that's going to be a sig- more significant percentage <laughs> of the of the stuff. Not that like the, all the script is written or anything like that. It's not like you know the uh, Baron and Luthien stuff that he wrote is like screenplay ready <laughs> by any stretch. There's a lot that still needs to be done, but we have a great deal to work with um, and a lot of details. And so our challenge is going to be rather different. Um, j- just quick kind of reflections from. Um, from you, from you guys, what are some of the things that you guys think about, you know, when you're kind of anticipating the Baron and Luthien story, both as far as like advantages, disadvantages, you know, things that you're uh, kind of looking forward to things that you're, that you think are going to be a, a bigger challenge, you know, a different kind of challenge than before. Well, one major thing is going to be the issue of the ending, right? Because yeah. the story isn't, really written like there's this huge like aftermath kind of epilogue that takes place in the Baron and Luthien story and so it's you know deciding where do we where do we end the season are they still alive when we well obviously they have to be still alive when we end the season but are you know has Baron died yet the first time (laughs) right right yeah it would be that would be actually be uh, um, spoiler alert all right, spoiler alert. Yeah, we how um, 
that would be a horrible piece of misdirection, wouldn't it? If we ended the season, like with Baron dead and Luthien weeping over him, and it's like, roll yeah. credits, end of the story. Thank you very much. Like, I, I think that wouldn't be a good idea. But it would be I, funny. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, or do we end the story with him, with them walk, waltzing into Menegroth? You know, with Baron hiding his stump of a hand until he's asked to produce the Cimmeril. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, it really, we really, it's one of the big decisions that we have to make is, and, and I, it sounds like a funny way to say it, but like, what what is our story, right? right. What is the story that we're telling? You know, what's the beginning and what's the end of the story that we're doing? Because it, it's it can't be the whole thing. I mean, we know Baron and Luthien are still going to be around when Doriath falls, right? right. You know, so um, obviously we're not going to end their story. Now. Yeah, right. exactly. Exactly. They're going to be lurking in the background for season seven and eight, right? Yeah. And nine, possibly maybe multiple, you know, seasons, um, depending on how much we get through between now and then. But um, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's it's certainly not going to be not not going to be a, a, a you know a, a terminus in that way. So we really do have to decide what is the story arc that we really want to to do. Um, um, because it could be, I mean, I, I see what you mean. We could really focus, like, have a, this sort of Angband-centric story, right? Um, really end with um, them, you know, surviving and returning from Angband. But leaving Karkaroth running around mad and ending the season, I, that would be hard to do. I, I don't think we could do that. But, I mean, the more we keep doing, I mean, I'm just, it's gonna, it makes me wonder how easy it's going to be to squeeze everything in. Because there's a lot. I mean, with the Nargothrond stuff and with the Sauron stuff and then the Angband stuff and then all the post-Angband stuff, right? Then the return to Doriath and the uh, the whole Karkaroth hunt, right? Which could be an episode all by itself. And then with Baron's death, right? And then, oh, and then the after-death stuff, um, you know, the song before Mandos and, and everything. I mean, it's it's a lot. There's a lot of stuff. Um, so, yeah, yeah. And that is certainly going to be an interesting challenge. What do you think, Marie? What are your kind of big picture Baron and Luthien thoughts? Um, I guess the characterization and portrayal of certain things is making me a little bit nervous going into it all. Right. In the sense that, like, obviously this is a love story. And when you read it, it's like, oh, what a lovely story. And it's like, okay, now we're going to put people on screen. So right. what exactly does Baron look like like age-wise versus Luthien and we portray their oh. meeting by she's dancing in the woods what does she look like and then he's like what lurking and staring at her that's kind of creepy how does this yeah. like actually look on screen and then so, he chases her right, and then he and chases then, her yeah. right and you know she's magical uh -huh. it's fine she can just yeah. stop him it's not yeah. like she's in any danger but but what apparently is, nobody told him no means no. Right, I mean, but the optics are not good on that. Yeah, There's a yeah. lot of stuff about it that it's like, wait a minute. How, mm -hmm. We can't just... How are we going to make this look and still have it be like, oh, what a sweet love story. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, no, it's, to tell the story the way we want it to be told, but... Exactly, exactly. Actually putting it on the screen, it's like, oh, wait. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's true. No, I mean, as I mentioned last season when we were doing RFL and AOL, um, I think I mentioned the, the really provocative paper that Kate Niggle gave at a conference that I was you know, uh, uh, watching and uh, attending a couple of years ago. And she was where she was basically showing the parallels between the RFL and AOL romance, right, and the Baron and Luthien romance and sort of showing how Tolkien was kind of building... Uh, seems to be building Arathel and Aeol as this kind of like the dark side of, you know, the, the kind of inverse of the Baron and Luthien story. Um, but yeah, that could kind of work the other way if we're not careful, right? I mean, we we already did the creepy one. We want a non-creepy one. Um, and yet we do want to, you know, there, there are elements of that. Uh, I mean, the meeting of Baron and Luthien is possibly the single... If the story of Baron and Luthien is the most important story in the entire Legendarium, which I think is perfectly clear, right, that that is the heart of the whole Legendarium, the scene, which is the most important iconic scene in that central most important story, is the meeting scene, right, when Baron sees her and has the experience that he has, right? So we, it's not like, you know, it's going to be hard to take too much license with that story, but I agree with you. There's going to be a lot of challenge there. Um, and as you say, that's only one example. There, there are many other places where, think like the characterization, um, it, it, is, uh, it is not, it does not always make things simpler to have, lots of material to work with than when there's no material to work with or very little. I certainly agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So some of the material we have, we, we will be drawing, uh, in various places from, all three of the major published versions of the Baron and Luthien story, the Tale of Tenuviel and the Book of Lost Tales, that's the earliest version of the story, the Lay of Lathian uh, from the Lays of Beleriand, the poetic version in rhyming couplets, um, and then, of course, the Baron and Luthien chapter uh, from the Silmarillion. Um, we've already been freely uh, uh, taking material from these already. Um, in particular, of course, the character of Tevildo, whom we've already just killed off in the previous season, um, is taken from the tale of Tenuviel very famously. Um, but uh, the Lay of Lathian in particular, I am looking forward to... Um, I'm going to be leaning on that, I think, a little bit more during the, some of the Sauron stuff, especially. I, I love the depiction of, of, uh, sort of, of, of Sauron and what's going on with him there. But... Um, Anyway, um, yeah, so, okay, so there's definitely, there's lots of, there's lots of stuff, um, and we're going to be kind of doing what we've done in lots of places, which is picking and choosing our favorite stuff and what we think is going to go best together, because, of course, the most important thing, the first thing that you should, as I believe to be true anytime anybody is doing an adaptation, the first and most important thing is that the story that we tell needs to be a good story, right? It needs to make sense. And so we want to pull together the stuff that we think is going to make for a really excellent story. Now, um, the scope, you know, we were already kind of talking about this a little bit. We know for sure where we're beginning, right? We're beginning right after the Dagor Bragalach, um, 
so first age 457 is when we're starting um beginning within a year of the last episode of season five so um we we had you know the sack of Dorthonian by Glaurung and company in the Dagor Bragalach last time um we had of course the death of Ignor and Angrod um in uh episode 12 wasn't that that was in 12 right in episode 12 uh of um of seasons uh, season five so we're definitely having Baron in Dorthonian uh with Barahir's band of outlaws um so I mean it's going to take us a bit even to get Baron to Doriath, I think, because we're not, I cannot imagine us wanting to lose, um, uh, you know, uh, Gorlim and the betrayal and the death of Barahir. And mm-hmm. I mean, we had Barahir, you know, was a, um, a fairly prominent character in the, in the latter part of season five. Um, so we definitely need to give some closure to not only his story, but the story of the house of Beor there in Dorthonian. So, um, we, uh, we can't, we can't just cut to the meeting scene, you know, as you know, start with episode one, uh, with Baron staggering through the woods. Right. Um, uh, so anyway, and and we've got to begin setting up Luthien's character. Now, we've already done some work there, right? We had Luthien's character already. The primary context in which we've introduced Luthien's character in previous years was in season four. Um, we had one of our major subplots of season four was Galadriel in Doriath. So we had, in particular, um, we did Galadriel's... Um, wedding to Celeborn. So um, her and Celeborn falling in love and they got married at the very end of season four um, is how we did that. And so we introduced Luthien in that context because we had Galadriel and Luthien's friendship there. And so we had Luthien at several points um, interacting with Galadriel, learning from Galadriel, even um, learning as well as teaching. Um, So so we, we've done a little bit of Luthien already. Um, and we, of course, we had Luthien also. Um, I was going to say a cameo, but that's not quite fair. We had an appearance by Luthien um, at the Marath Adarthad as well um, at the beginning of season. That was four also, wasn't it? Yeah, that was yes, four that, also. That, that's in season four. We, yeah. Luthien did appear in season three. Um, her main role there was Doriath was forming. Right. Well, I mean, it existed, but the threat from the outside and the spiders and all that. So her role was trying to figure out what her people needed at that time, basically. So the whole, I'm not going to be a warrior princess. I'm going to do something else. And that's more powerful in a way. Um, So her beginning of her story is there where she is deciding that giving people hope and working to preserve art and peace and all of this is where it's at. Right. <laughs> so exactly. we, we have that starting point for her before all the wars right. of Valerian happen. Right. So we've, we've done some context. Now, one character with whom we have spent very little time and whom we will need to establish at the beginning of the season is Dairon. Right. And that's going to be interesting to establish Dairon's character and figure that out. Or reestablish him, because he... He did appear. I mean, we had him he on was, screen. He was a, a fairly decent part of season three. Um, like, there were... He was in a lot of the episodes where we focus on the Sindar right. in season three. 
He was um, one of Fingal's primary folks that we had from the beginning, right? Yeah, and we show him as a close friend of Luthien. But we kind of did lose track of him, mostly because we don't spend a lot of time in Doriath in right. seasons four and five. We spend a little bit of time there. But we're in situations where the focus is very political, and Dairon... Luthien finds a new friend in Galadriel, and we don't really get much... There's not a lot of room for Dairon in those yeah. scenes. Yeah. He, he appears at the end of season four. He's one of the guests at the wedding. At, at the wedding, right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, yes, as far as who is he as a person at that point, he's a guest at Galadriel's wedding. <laughs> right. So he's, right. Right. Yeah, we haven't so forgotten we haven't... about the fact that he's important, and but it's hard because all of the other important fo- we, we really had we had Thingol, and then we we decided there were going to be four important people. Right? There's there's Beleg, and there's um, uh, Magor, and there's Celeborn, and there's Dairon. Right? Oh, Mablung. What did I say? Maglor. Maglor. Sorry, totally different. Yeah. yeah. Mablung is what I meant. Right. Beleg, Mablung, uh, Dairon, and Celeborn. Right. And of course, obviously, we had a big focus on Celeborn in season four with his relationship with Galadriel. And uh, uh, Mablung has had a few moments because he's like the military commander. So whenever there's been a military thing going on, we've had an opportunity to bring Mablung in. Beleg, of course, has had even more opportunity. And in particular, we brought him in with um, Haleth and the Haladin, right, last season. So we've had some good excuses to bring to, to bring some... Give some major screen time, um, or at least some significant, relatively significant screen time, to almost to everybody but Dairon, basically, since season three. Um, and so, and partly, of course, that was because we knew this was coming. <laughs> we knew he was going to get his time here, right? And this was really the moment when he was um, uh, going to be sort of focused on. But it's, um, uh. But yeah, so we're we're. It's not exactly a blank slate, but it's it's pretty sparse. It's a, reintrod- it's a reintroduction, and it's it's gonna feel like we brought him out of mothballs just right. to can him, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, because he's only gonna. Though you know, let me just say, I would not be against doing a little more with Dairon than happens. Like, in the book, he just vanishes, right? Like, we come back and he's just gone and we never see him again. Um, I would not be against giving a little more closure to the Dairon story. Or if not closure, at least, like, I mean, look, he's still uh, available, Right, <laughs> like I, 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 I'm, I feel a little bit waste not want not with Dairon's character. Right, there might be times when he could be useful. I don't know. I, I'm just I, I'm wondering. I I, I don't know. I like, guess it's just can, it's the you know the possibility. Can elves love again after they've been in love, or is he just he oh, was he, he never actually in love with Luthien? Well, see, that would be one of the questions, and and it's fine. He did he could live like a you know, I. Uh, you know, go on to find fulfillment in other things. And, 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 you know, he doesn't have to be a romantic lead in the rest of his story. Um, But if, but just like, I thought, I mean, it's, 
what happens to him? What happens to him has been one of the... Exactly. I've always wanted to know. Like, where is Dairon? Like, did he just wander off and fall off a cliff somewhere? I mean, it seems... That would seem lame. But if not, what happened to him? So, yeah. yeah. I would, I would kind of. It's not again, not that closure might perhaps be too strong a word. We don't have to like off him, uh, you know. We don't have to. We don't have to produce a body. But if, yeah. I, anyway, I it just an might idea. be worth thinking about. I have an idea, like a, a vaguest sense of an idea, because it's we've. I've brought up before that at some point, Galadriel is going to have to do a little bit of backsliding because we've kind of brought her a, a little far in her character development we have to kind of like take her back a little bit mm-hmm. and i can see that dairon being involved on some level not as a romantic character but just like at being present mm-hmm. um as kind of a warning you know um, right might be useful there yeah yeah i that's oh, yeah yeah, I could see, I could, I could see that um, some kind of connection there with Goad or with Celeborn, right? I mean, yeah. you know, maybe he um, uh, when he goes out to do what he does, which I guess is vaguely look for her in all the wrong places, apparently. And this is the other thing that I always found so unsatisfactory about the Dairon non-closure is that it's like everybody knows where she... Like, it's only a short period of time, and then it's well known where she's living, right? So it's like, seriously, he's just like wandering the earth looking for her, and he's the only one who doesn't know where she is? Like, anyway, as I say, I've always found it a little bit... um, I've always wanted to know what happened to Dairon. So, um... I think maybe what we do is we it's going to be determined, I think, by the initial trajectory of his story to kind of see where we want him to end up. Um, uh, there's a whole bunch of different directions, I think, that he could that he could go. But um, anyway, so that's certainly going to be one interesting thing. And then the final episode, of course, so, you know, if we try to do the story basically following the structure of the Silmarillion chapter, we would end in Osirian. Right. But again, that's going to be one of the things that we're going to have to decide is exactly where we want to end uh, again. You know, and w- one of the nice and of course, this, this is not the end. Right. We're going to have season seven after this. So, um, you know, is there some of the stuff that we would want to save? Um, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, uh, but um, my I, I, I think I agree that my own impulse is to end like, you know, have the two of them walk hand in hand into the forest of Osirian, right? And like, you know, disappear from view and credits roll. I, you know, like I, that's kind of my um, my own inclination there. Um, but uh, but we'll see. Yeah. There, again, there's so much to there's so much to be done, and I don't yet really see the like the in full the thematic shape, like how we want that to hit. You know what I mean? At the end, like it's that them, yeah. them, them retiring to Assyrian could be done in so many different ways. Like that could mm-hmm. be, that could have so many different effects depending on how we build up to it and set it up. But the main effect that it has on the structure of the season is on what the climax of the season is. Right. Because that, that, that forces us to make the encounter with Mandos the real, climax the real climax. The yes. Yes. In which case we need to make sure that we're laying groundwork for, for that, that specifically, kind of, yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah, so that that's absolutely. not just a new story that's coming out of nowhere. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And that's again, that's that's my first impulse. My first impulse is to um, uh, to make the the song before Mandos the final. Um, and and the thing that's really fun about that is, of course, the confrontation with Morgoth will look and feel like the big climax, right? I mean, they are confronting the big boss. This is this huge moment. Luthien singing before Morgoth and casting him into slumber. <clears throat> but it's really kind of awesome to sort of build off that and show that actually that's merely, that's like the song before Morgoth is just a warm-up act compared to the song before Mandos, right? And to have this sort of parallel there, um, where the thing which looks like it's clearly the big confrontation turns out only just to be a setup uh, for the real thing there at the end. So I kind of like that, but but again, we'll we'll see. We'll um, um, we'll figure that out. Um, yeah, because then the challenge is always when you set yourself up like that, you have to really deliver with the final with the final one. Yeah, you can't mm-hmm. just be like, well. This one's more important, you guys. <laughs> right. Well, fortunately, one of the big advantages we have here is that um, Phil Menzies is going to be composing Luthien's song before uh, Mandos. So I think we can mostly just lean on Phil uh, for, um, you know, the production of Luthien's song. And then that'll pretty much carry the episode and we won't have to worry about it. So um, it's a good thing that the, the that our work is so easy uh, compared to that. Um <laughs> So I, I just I like we love you, Phil. I'm just giving you a hard time, except, you know, it's true. Uh, but it, <laughs> I, it's, you know, but seriously, like as a, I, I can only imagine as a composer, you know, we joke about the Ainu Lindale being, you know, the like biggest challenge for uh, for any composer to, you know, could you just compose the music of the Ainu, please? But honestly, like. Luthien's song before Mandos would be in my top five. <laughs> you know, it's. The 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 Anulindale is number one, but uh, but you know, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's um, definitely some opportunities for very significant songwriting happening. Definitely, this definitely. Like, obviously, yeah. the song before Mandos is important, but as you mentioned, she's singing and dancing for Morgoth, and uh, there's the uh, rap battle duel between Finrod and Sauron. Yeah, the songs of mastery there. Like, it's, there's we probably we, opportunities for some music. We probably the have the highest rap battle. The ultimate rap battle, yeah. We probably have the highest stakes, uh, you know, musical numbers in this season than we have had or ever will have. Frankly, this is the this is I mean, this, is, a, this is big stuff. Again, yeah, like always accepting the Ina Lindelay, which is in its own category. But um, yeah, speaking yeah. speaking of challenges this season. Um, we we also have the issue of not losing track of what's happening elsewhere. Yes. Because the temptation, I feel, is to just zoom in entirely on this story. But this story isn't happening in isolation. There are parts of the other story that are hap- that are touching it. You know, the whole thing with Kelegorm and Kurfin, that is part of the outside story. Encountering Sauron at Tulsirian you know, that which was once Tolsirian yes. is part of the larger story. We have to figure out how Thorin Grethel dies. You know, like there's all these things 
that yeah. we need to that we need to find out about. Um, oh, Barahir and you know Barahir and his men being betrayed. Like that's all part of the big story, and so we got to make sure that we don't lose track of what's going on because yeah. there's a few there's a few loose ends that we've that we've left. Yep. Kelly no, Gordon, absolutely. Yeah. No, go, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, Kelgarn Kel- and Kurafan, yeah. Yeah. So they ended in defeat. What makes them go from that to thinking, hey, maybe we should try to take over Nargothron? That sounds like a great idea. Like, what generates that? The We have a dragon sitting in uh, Keep Helivorn. Keep Helivorn, yeah. Not dealt with. <laughs> right. <laughs> we have the Eastern Front. The whole Eastern Front is in shambles, still not dealt with, right? There's all these right. other things that are, go- that are going on that are going to... Ki- like, if we don't deal with them at all, it's going to kind of... We're either going to have to do this really quick tie together in at the beginning of the following season, or we have to lay the groundwork in this one. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, and that I would say is one of the things that's going to be both the um, one of the big challenges, because as I said, we've got a whole lot of material. If we were just if this were just, you know, a one season treatment of the story of Baron and Luthien, there would already be challenges in figuring out what we're going to include and how we're going to handle that. But it isn't that it this is being done in the context of the work that we've already done and we're not going to leave that behind we do have um the this the the silmarillion chapter you know of baron and luthien is it very much zooms in like you're only very peripherally aware of what's going on in the rest of the world right i mean in fact the you know the first paragraph of the next chapter you know, of the near ninth arnodiad chapter is like well, meanwhile, like in the rest of the world, here's what people thought, you know. Um, and we, yeah, we can't we can't just drop our. I mean, we just killed off Fingolfin in the at the end of the last episode of season thirteen. Well, hey, uh, Fingon is high king now, right? How's that going? You know, um, what are his thoughts? We don't get anybody, and you know, we got reactions to the death of Fingolfin in the moment, right? We kind of worked that in, especially, of course, Turgon receiving his body at the very end of the episode. So we got a little bit of reaction in that sense, but um, but yeah, we we do have a bigger story, and we need we do need to make sure that we are contextualizing this. But this is the challenge as well, um, both. We can't afford to get lost into um, uh, to get lost into other um, uh, into other you know to have the other storylines get lost. Um, but at the same time, we we can't lose the thread of the Baron and Luthien story in like all the other political stuff that's happening, right? And we need to make sure that we're holding to our theme, right? We need to kind of bring, make sure that the Baron and Luthien story is establishing something that really resonates with the other stories. And they're not just like, Oh, and PS, here's what Mithros was up to at the time. Right. Um, it needs to, it needs to mesh with the Baron and Luthien story in important ways. And that I think is going to be the really interesting, 
uh, the really interesting thing. Where where Luthien begins this season in Doriath, Doriath wasn't part of the Dagar Bridal so they right. were on the outside, sitting it out. But that doesn't mean Doriath has zero opinions on what just happened. Right. So we can right. kind of see the events that have just played out from the perspective of the people of Doriath while we're spending right. time with Luthien. Like, they're not going to sit around and be like, so, have you heard... <laughs> Come on, it's perfect, right? We get some nice exposition in there, right? Yeah. Sire, I have news. It is a recap of season five, right? Yes. But they have to have thoughts about this and yeah. opinions mm. and concerns for the future. and all, like So whatever it is they're discussing could be touching on some of what we left behind in the last yeah. season and then draw into what we're going to go with the rest of the season. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, okay, so, whoop, uh, whoop, uh, okay. Yeah, let's talk about the other storylines because that's where we were. We've just been talking about some stuff. So, uh, there's so many things. Um, the biggest thing, in my opinion, is the Sauron story. Yeah, this is huge. Yeah. Right. This is one of the turning points of Sauron's career. And as we've said many times, Sauron is the uh, clandestine main character of this entire show. Right. He is the one character who is going to tie uh, season one to season 25 or whatever it is that we get up to in the end. Um, uh, It is the rise and eventual fall of Sauron is kind of the arc of this entire show. Um, uh, we focused in on Sauron a great deal way back in season one, which old timers will remember um, when we saw his, like, you know, the seduction of Myron by Melkor and his, you know, his defection uh, to Melkor's side in the first place. Um, and we have shown him as a, a sort of almost quasi outsider now in Melkor's court um, with Gothmog kind of, running things with a heavy hand though uh, to Sauron's disdain. Um, we have some major things by Sauron. We're going to have to have the taking of Minas Tirith and the, you know, making it into Tol and Gaurhoth. Um We're going to have, of course, his taking of Finrod and the Finrod battle. Um, we have to you know, you mentioned Thorin Gwethel, Nick. In, that's got to be very significant. Thorin Gwethel has been a major character of ours. We have had Thorin Gwethel be primarily, be Sauron's primary lieutenant. I mean, she's been his right hand for, since season two, you know. So, um, her, whereas in the text, her death happens off screen, right? And we're just like, P.S. There was a vampire named Thorin Gwethel. You know, on account of here's her pelt, right? You know, like here, here's her, here's the, you know, the bat hame of Thorin Gwethel. Um, and yeah. Thorin Gwethel, who is now dead, <laughs> was yes, a vampire. It was and a wasn't vampire. That cool. <laughs> this yeah. it blew my mind in the first my first reading of the Cimmerillion because, like, I had no idea vampires were part of the story. And right. it's like, it's like, yeah, yeah. And there was a vampire 
Thurman Gretel was like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, good time out. <laughs> right. There are vampires and, in the story. Yeah, yeah. He just tosses it off in one sentence, and then all we get is her carcass. You know, I mean, it's... Uh, so, yeah. So, we've done much more with Thurman Gretel. She's been a very prominent character. Um and we need to we need to close her storyline. You know, we we closed Tavildo's last time, and I was satisfied being slain, uh, and then having his pelt worn as a cape by uh, Haleth was a fitting end for Thoringuethel. Or sorry, for Tavildo. I'm happy with that. Um, but um, of course, the wearing of the pelts of Sauron's lieutenants by the good guys is going to be a little motif here over these two seasons. Um, although, of course, Haleth does uh, not disguise herself but anyway um so yeah we're definitely going to and then drug lewin too exactly alana um uh we've got drug now we know how drug lewin dies drug lewin at least in the text gets a dramatic death um point of order i was rereading this we can't we i i cannot sanction having them send out werewolf after werewolf after <laughs> werewolf to have the same effect. And then finally Dragluin goes out and hit the same thing happens to him. And then Sauron goes right out. It's just the same thing over and over and over it's and over like, again. It's like the battle strategy run by really bad AI, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Please, please. One, one time. One time. Dragluin, yeah. then Sauron. Dragula and then Sauron. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so we, we can... can defeat some werewolves in their approach to the bridge in some yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. Like, it doesn't They're... have to be a one-by-one werewolves creeping over the bridge. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> what keeps happening have, to all those werewolves? Have Dragula yeah. and go out with, like, three werewolves and Huan takes them all on, as Optimus Prime says. Right. We can we can do something like that. No, absolutely. I agree. But again, at least Dragula in the text gets a gets a boss battle right uh with huan um uh though i have to admit well anyway we can talk about that more later anyway so yeah so we got that moment right and um as you know maria as you're suggesting on the slide here the defeat by luthien of of sauron is it a big deal like it's a it's an important moment in the story, even as told in the published Silmarillion, it's even I, I say even in the published Silmarillion because I think it has an even more dramatic effect in the Lay of Lathian, in the poetic version, where we get so much more about well, Thu, right? But the Sauron character, the necromancer character, um, and the, you know, the whole the confrontation with Finrod, and then the imprisonment and interrogation, and um, and then the arrival of Huon and Luthien. It's just there's it's just it's longer. There's just there's more of it, and so um, it kind of is is a is a, a more prominent big deal in the poem than it than it is uh, it told in prose in the Silmarillion. But but of course, it's still being told within the semi-isolated context of the story of Baron and Luthien, which has very little interest in the implications of that story for elsewhere, right? And this has huge implications. I mean, this is not only a turning point in Sauron's career, this is a turning point in Melkor's entire strategy for Middle-earth in the First Age, right? I mean, Sauron was one of his major lieutenants, um... And the only one... Now, Glaurung has brains also. Gothmog does not, as we've depicted him, right? So um, 
when he loses Sauron, and how does that work exactly? Like, of course, the big question that we don't get the answer to in the text, but which we must answer. Where does Sauron go? What does he do? Because, of course, in the Silmarillion, Sauron goes, I was going to say limping off, but he's flying. So he, what limp, flying, bleeding, uh, vanishing off into the distance. Fluttering. Fluttering, yeah. And we don't hear from him again until Numenor, right? I mean, it's like, it's, that's it. You know, in the, um, uh, now I, got, I know chronologically we would hear about him as Anatar before we would hear about him in Numenor. But the point, but in the actual text, as you read it, uh, if you read through cover to cover in the Silmarillion, we don't meet Sauron again until Numenor. Yeah. The only, the only thing he does is he tries to surrender to, to yeah. Ianwe. Yeah. The, Ianwe? the, the yeah. possible re- repentance there. Yeah. Right. The, Oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, yeah. um, and then we never hear from him again. So, like, we don't know where he went and what he did there, even, or why he showed up to surrender. Like, what was he even doing during the entire War of Wrath? Who knows? Not us. Exactly. Stealing, stealing back the hammer so that when Morgoth reaches for it, when they come for him in the in the depths of Angband, it's not there. <laughs> it's not there, right? So that he can use the hammer later to bash down the the gates of Minas Tirith. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Repurposing, repurposing, exactly, exactly. But I mean, so so we think about that, right? Even if we say he doesn't make an appearance until he comes forth, uh, quasi repentant or apparently appent- repentant or or transitorily repentant or whatever he is, right? Whatever we decide he's going to be there at the end of the first stage. Even that is how many seasons from now? A bunch of seasons from now, right? We cannot possibly do without Sauron for that long. Like we will want Sauron. Um, and anyway, so, so yeah, there's, um, that's going to be not only, that's going to be a big decision for us to make because it's going to have major consequences that are going to determine a lot of what's going to happen for the next many seasons. Um, what role is Sauron going to play from now on, between now and the War of Wrath, right? As I don't think he's just going to go into retirement and become a hermit until Aeonwe, you know, rounds him up uh, at the end of the First Age. No, he, he definitely is up to something, and we'll have to figure out how to bring that into the rest of the story. Because if he flees into the East and does something that isn't part of the Balerion storyline, then it's not seemingly part of the Balerion storyline, unless we make it part of the Balerion storyline when the Easterlings come in. And, you know, like, right. so we, can, we can do stuff with him that ties into where we're going. Yes. The Temptation of Galadriel. Okay. I'm just spitballing. Okay. Well, I mean, we can't lose track of Galadriel. We can't lose track of Sauron. Right. Combine, well, that's the thing. <laughs> combined forces. Right. Story exactly. With and Sauron. Exactly. <laughs> Both of them who have headed over the mountains and uh, wandered where they thought they were going to be off screen, but no. Right. They can. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And they can meet Tom Bombadil, so that'll be the, <laughs> right. the cameo for him right. because he's also right. over those mountains. I forget. By the way, what was his cameo in season five? Did we forget it? No, no, we, we had something. 
Oh my did we gosh. Have, did we forget? I can't forget remember Tom either. Bombay I was too, just but... thinking of that same thing. Yeah, it's it's been so again for people who are new. This has been one of our rules. We have a Tom Bombadil cameo in every season. Um, uh, we had him at the eclipse of the sun in season four. Uh, looking up at the sun. I forget now, but I, I do remember we talked about putting him in somewhere in season five. I just don't recall where we put him. We can always we can always retcon him back in if we forgot. But uh, anyway, it might have been when they were crossing the mountains in the very beginning in episode one. Oh, the oh, he's, he's House no, of Bayar. He's not in the song. He's not in the song. So, like, as they're marching by, they don't like wave to Tom Bombadil as he's, <laughs> as he's going by. I'm, I'm doing a search of the uh, of, of the the forms. Unfortunately, Bombadil comes up quite a lot. In right. other conversations, so. right? Hard to find. Well, we'll yeah. we'll we'll figure that out. We'll come back to that. Um, Sorry. Anyway, it's okay. So the uh, the but anyway, like I say, the Sauron story, and um, and I agree with you, Marie. We need not only to deal with Sauron's defeat and what comes afterwards. We have to figure out what exactly is defeated, and this is one of the major ways, in my opinion. Sauron is our bridge, or at least one potential strong bridge between the Baron and Luthien story and the rest of Beleriand, right? The rest of those stories of what's going on elsewhere. Because Sauron is, he has a, he has an initiative, right? He has a plan. He's, he's, he's moving forward with a new scheme of which the taking of Tolsirion is kind of the linchpin. Right. Or at least the first stage. But that's not his only plan. He's got additional plans. He and Thor and Grethel have additional plans. Um, And so we are going to uh, the the overthrow of Sauron and destruction of Talsirion is going to um, have a huge impact on what's going on elsewhere. And again, so it's one of the ways that we can show the links, right? The the kind of connections between what's happening in the Baron and Luthien story and what's happening elsewhere, of course, because uh, there are several major points in the Baron and Luthien story that are, that are going to have repercussions, right? Like across the continent. Um, one is the Nargothrond thing and, you know, Finrod's abdication, obviously. Um, the other is the overthrow of Sauron. The other is what happens with Morgoth. That's got to change things, too. One way... And another, um, it can make things harder in some ways. It can make things easier in some ways. But um, it's going to be um, it's going to be it's going to be pretty significant. So, um, great. oh, here we go. Octoburn eighty six says Bombadil was in episode seven of season five, watching Bereg go back east. Okay, okay. So after after the council. Um, yes. I knew it was one crossing at Estelad. Yeah. Remember which one? Okay, it was that one. Perfect. Yes, yeah. we did include yes. him. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, yes. Okay. Um, yes. Okay. Good. All right. I, I I I thought I had a vague memory, but I couldn't remember it for sure. Anyway, point is, and then Karkaroth, right? Karkaroth also is going to. I mean, we're told that. You know, the descent of Karkaroth upon Beleriand is one of the greatest disasters that ever befalls Beleriand, right? 
Okay, we've got some in, in work to do there. Where, in a world with a Glaurung. Exactly. Right? Glaurung and, and the Drag- and the, and the Dagor Bragalak have just happened, but Karkaroth is, well, different in, in any case. And, by the way, speaking of Karkaroth, in our story, why, why is he? Because in the book, it seems like Sauron, not Sauron, Morgoth either has a little bit of time between before the time that Baron and Luthien between the time that Baron and Luthien defeat Sauron and arrive at Angban to hand feed Karkaroth to the point where he becomes this monstrous thing. Right. Well, he's heard or it happens I mean, very fast. Now everybody knows this the the story about Huan. Right, everybody knows that who the the prophecy about Huon. So um, he, that is Morgoth, has had time to raise himself a, a, a huge wolf guardian. Right, um, he doesn't have to be generated between those two times, but but nevertheless, it does mean that Morgoth has to take Huon awfully seriously. Right. I mean, it's it seems an almost disproportion, like, you know, for Morgoth to be like, okay, one of the Feanorian lords has a dog, and that dog is a very scary dog. So I'm going to undergo an entire breeding program designed to thwart the lead dog of one of Feanor's sons. Like, that's... That's that's like taking a lot of Morgoth's headspace right there. Until like until the defeat of Drogluin and Sauron, it doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Like if it if he begins, as in the book, it seems to indicate, if he begins the creation of Karkaroth or the amplification of Karkaroth, at that point okay, he, he just knocked down one of your your best dudes, right? right? Okay, I get, I buy that. But before that, why, as you say? So, personally, I think I would want to play the Karkaroth thing as not exactly a coincidence, but again, it's... I have a hard time imagining outside of the frame of the Baron and Luthien story. And Karkaroth is, of course, a holdover from the original tale of Tenuvio, in which Huon was a bigger deal, you know. Um, by placing Huon, um, Huon was like the archetype of dog in the original tale of Tenuvio, right? He was like the ur-dog of all dogs, like the ancestor of every dog that ever lived. Um, uh, and therefore opposed by the ancestor of every cat who ever lived, who was Tevildo. So you get the... well, And the whole thing came down to a myth of explanation. Like, this is why dogs and cats still don't get along to this day, because of Huan and Tevildo, right? That was kind of the sort of tagline of that whole story thread. Um, but Huan was a, like a deeply mythic character in the first version of the story. Um, when Huan gets integrated into the overall storyline more, 
right? It gets connected to, to to Keligorm. An explanation is given as to how he was brought over from Valinor. But howsoever awesome Huon might seem, he just does not any longer in the like in the in the published Silmarillion. He does not any longer have the mythic stature that he had in the tale of 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 Tenuviel back at the beginning. He's no longer the original dog, right? The forefather of all dogs, um, and he's just a really cool, awesome hound that um, Kelgorm uh, brought from Valinor. Um, and again, he's still awesome. He's still one of everybody's feet, and he can speak. Several times, yes, exactly. No, I mean he's awesome. He's still very cool. Three, yeah, three times. But, um, but again, he doesn't have the same mythic stature. So in the con- in that new context, in the Huan is Kelligorm's awesome dog context, it's really hard for me to imagine Morgoth calling together a board meeting, you know, to be like, okay, guys, let's brainstorm. How do we overcome Kelligorm's dog? Right. Like, seriously, one of the Feanorians has a pet that's a little scary. Um, OK, you know, talk to me. Let's figure out how do we we need a whole R&D wing working on this. You know, how to a countermeasure for Kelligorm's dog. Um, like, it's just that it is impossible for me to imagine. Again, I'm not saying we don't do you know, Karkaroth. I'm not saying we don't do. We've already done the prophecy and that's great. Um, but my vote for this would be that we make it something like serendipity, a coincidence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's not like, Oh, oops, I accidentally created the world's greatest wolf. Like that's not the point. But the point is like for other reasons known to himself, Morgoth is going to create the greatest wolf of all, the biggest wolf of all time. And then it's going to turn out like that will, it, who will be the fulfillment. I mean, the prophecy was made for a reason because it was going to be fulfilled, right? And so when it comes to cause and effect, all I'm suggesting is that we turn around the cause and effect, right? The yeah. wolf, the, the, the prophecy is the cause and the wolf the effect in the story, right? Because they know the prophecy, they're like, okay, we got to make with generating the world's biggest wolf in order to fulfill the prophecy. All I'm saying is that Karkaroth is the cause and the prophecy the effect, right? That it was a foretelling of Karkaroth that led to the prophecy in the first place. Karkaroth is kind of like what Morgoth did when he saw what Sauron was doing with, with the orcification pro- yeah. project, yeah. right? Like, Sauron makes these dark, twisted elves, and Morgoth's like... <clears throat> right. Old dog. <laughs> no half measures around here. None of this right. namby pamby elves who worship me kind of thing. No, right. no, no, no. That's not what right. we're doing. Yeah. Like, like, sure, your werewolves are cool and all that, but we've used them on the battlefield and they do get killed. So what if they didn't? You know? <laughs> like, right. right. What if they were bigger and stronger and meaner and crazier? Like, right. Yes. This werewolf thing. It's got some. It's got some merits. This werewolf idea, right? But I'm thinking more. <laughs> I'm thinking bigger. I'm thinking like one big old tank wolf. And here's the other thing that we have. Here's the other thing that we have. Um, he just had somebody come and knock on his gates and humiliate him, right? Wouldn't it be nice to have a large feral dog. 
hungry guard dog who will just eat out of hand any obstreperous elf kings who come beating on his door in the future, right? Uh, Let's not have hand. a repetition of that thing, right? Out of hand, so so to speak. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, Specifically that go after better. the hand. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yeah. I want all elf lords to be missing one hand. Please. Thank you very <laughs> minimum. Much. Bare minimum. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, 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 I think... Um, and then it and then and then it it just turns out, of course, that Karkaroth is the wolf that was foreseen in the. I mean, there's a reason the prophecy was made. Um, uh, I mean, honestly, that's one of the things I've always liked least about that storyline uh, in the original. T- I don't like the prophecy being the cause and Karkaroth being the effect. Like normally, when you have prophecies. And somebody does goes out of their way to either make a prophecy happen or not happen. That act almost always backfires on the person who does it, right? I mean, like Oedipus being the most classic example of this kind of thing, right? The further you go out of your way to try to prevent the the prophecy happening, the more you're likely to guarantee that it does happen, right? But the same is true the other way around. If you hear that there's like a prophesied, you know, king who's going to return and you do everything you can to kind of cast yourself in that role and be like, I'm going to make the prophecy happen, it's unlikely to happen, right? I mean, you normally, that's like the normal trope. So the fact that it kind of pans out for for Morgoth to do it that way always kind of bothered me a little bit. I mean, he is Morgoth. He's allowed to like, make his own prophecies and then make them happen by his own power. Yeah, I know. He can. It's true. I, I, I agree just... that if you were a human character, I'd be like, yeah, you can't just do a self-fulfilling you, prophecy thing. That's you can't just make it happen. You can't just yeah, make it happen. So so I wouldn't object if it... Up. I know, but it's... it's... I think it'd be cool. Now, so... so but we, we could introduce a distinction here, by the way. Morgoth probably hasn't heard of the prophecy, right? Because again, like, he probably doesn't collect prophecies about his enemy's pets, right? I mean, honestly, like, seriously, does he care? Like, I don't know. But Sauron would have heard of this, right? So if Sauron, when Huan shows up, if Sauron is like, oh, I've heard the prophecy and it's on, right? Um, but Morgoth, you know, kind of accidentally actually fulfills the prophecy like that that would seem to me to kind of work a little better the villain who is present when the prophecy is uttered on screen is glara As, yes yes it's it's in the finale of season four right. so presumably glaron knows about this and glaron probably doesn't care right but he probably is, does not care tell? who did he tell and that we did not see so we can do with the information what we want to as far as continuity with film film goes. Well, we can have, uh, I mean, we need to do something with Glaurung anyway, so we can give Sauron and Glaurung a power lunch, you know, in the first part of the season. Uh, We're going to have to figure out something to do with Glaurung, aren't we? I mean, we would have to get him out of Keep Keep Hellborn first, unless Sauron is the one who gets sent off to do it, in which case... Like, why are they talking about Kelgorm's dog here right this second? It's... <laughs> you just have to bring the dialogue around to that somehow, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, somebody said a funny thing about this dog during the battle that I happen to remember. Yeah. 
seems likely to come up. <laughs> like the the only way, like it's it's just it's very convenient if we have somebody tell Sauron this thing now, at this point. Like it's right. just it's a little it's a little on the nose. Yeah. Well. Anyway, these are among the like, dealing with Huan and Huan's prophecy is going to be a whole thing uh, in this season. I mean, we've been we've been faithfully building up Huan, um, but I mean, he's not like he's been a major character. But we've had him around, and he's been a recurring character, and um, we have um, sort of seen him be awesome in various ways. My favorite, still my favorite um, build-up uh, with Huan was Huan's role in the Kinslang was still my, my favorite Huan moment that we've had so far. Um, but um, anyway, I... I think yeah. that in general, if we can create situations that are open to interpretation, that's always better. Yeah. Because then, as long as we know that what we think is happening in the background as long as yeah. we have that all worked out like we're good but we can present the story and let it just speak for itself yeah so if you if you want a which is the cause which is the effect question to be more or less unanswered like morgoth has his reasons for creating a giant wolf and we present that yeah there is this prophecy the audience knows about which of the villains know about this and what are they doing about it we don't necessarily ever have to say. Yeah. The audience knows about the prophecies, so right. the information's already out there. And as long as it all fits together, like we don't have to specifically create a situation where someone says, so about this prophecy. About this prophecy. Well, I, I just thought of one thing. We have set up, we had a near conflict between Draugluin and Huon, right? Right. right. It would make all kinds of sense if Draugluin is the one who's like obsessed with Huan, right? And would bring him up to Sauron, right? right? Um, yeah. Especially before he goes out to, to meet yeah. with, because who, who else could be the greatest wolf that ever lived or ever would live? Everyone's going to assume it's Draugluin. Draugluin. Yeah. And he yeah. would assume that it, would, it is also himself. Yeah, certainly. And he certainly. And he would he would he would bemoan having missed his opportunity during the uh during the battle uh, yes. during the Dagger Bragalock. Yeah, Huan is like the one that got away for Drug Lewin at this point. And so he was gonna be kind of obsessed about him, but also like in his heart of hearts a little bit afraid of Huan too. Like he he, he there's there there's he's a, he is a real genuine rival. So that I mean that kind of thing makes all kinds of sense. And indeed, wouldn't it be fun? Um, wouldn't it be fun to... Now, obviously, this isn't going to work on anybody who actually knows the story. But for, like, viewers who had never read The Silmarillion before, to actually think when Draugluin is killed that Huan has, like, escaped the prophecy? Like, look, we all know that that's the greatest wolf that's ever been. He's the father of werewolves, right? Um, and Huan just killed him. So, so much for that prophecy thing, right? And then, like, Karkaroth steps out later, and, and it's... Anyway, I, I think that could be cool. Well, we, we probably should start introducing Karkaroth 
a, a little earlier if we can so that because otherwise he's just like otherwise we have to do what the Silmarillion so the Silmarillion does this thing where they they get to Angband and then they go in flashback and right. tell you about Karkaroth right. yeah. yes and like we could do that um, it's not my favorite no what I'm thinking is that we can hear some discussion with, or whether it's discussion or not but we can hear like that Morgoth we can hear references to that there's a new guardian Right, that he is stuck. There is a new guardian that he has bred to guard the gate. We don't have to see him, or even know what it is. Right, we can even hear his name. Right, I mean, uh, but we don't have to like. But it could. We could wait until Baron and Luthien approach the gate to see the ginormous wolf actually come out. Right, and then that's when everyone's like, oh, "Okay, right now, though, that's that's the prophecy." Now, um, that's what or- I'm saying. We don't have to actually see him. We can just hear that a guardian is being made. I mean, it's a little bit kind of like what we did with Glaurung when we were teasing him for half a season, but or we, three quarters we, of a season. We but. didn't tease him at all. He just came out of nowhere. He was not in any way teased. However, we uh, talked about th- teasing him anyway. Yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> so. we did. We did. We did. That was rejected. Um, okay, and not by me. Um, so. Not bitter about it at all. The, <laughs> it's good. It's good to hear you've let that go, Nick. I'm yeah, glad. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> what I was thinking. So one of the reasons why we ultimately decided not to go down the road of hinting at Glaurung is because we kind of wanted to avoid cutesy Glaurung, right? Oh, like like juvenile Glaurung. Like isn't he adorable? Right. 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 Okay. But not monstrous, not quite yet fully monstrous Karkaroth probably isn't that bad a thing to show. And maybe showing um, like in just kind of like an offhand thing, like Morgoth is like throwing food down to a group of of werewolves and one of them kills one or more of the others and Morgoth's like, hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and feeds him more. That might be a, at least enough setup. Yeah, and as long as he has some sort of distinctive marking so that when we see him again, we're like, oh no, it's that one. Right, right, um, right. The feral puppy from earlier on in the season. Right, and yeah. And we can do both things. Yes. Because. If we have a scene in Morgoth's throne room and he happens to be tossing meat to a wolf, like that is just a thing that's happening. And if there's news in Valerian of a new guardian on the gates of Angband, yes, that's a separate thing. They're not connected until we see the wolf at the gate. I I like that a lot because it drops different unrelated threads and draws them together. I like how. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while still leaving something for the reveal, especially in the context of the, of the, of the Huan prophecy, right? So that, you know, we will not, it will not be obvious to connect all of those dots that this is the culmination of the prophecy until Baron and Luthien show up at the gate. And then it's perfectly obvious, even though Huan is not himself there at the time. Right. But we will, it will now be clear the collision course that Kakaroth and Huan are going to be on. Yeah. And, the um wow this just slipped my mind so 
Yeah, and well, it avoids us having to, as has been mentioned, having a scene of presenting the greatest wolf that has ever lived. So, right. and, you know, that's fantastic. But it also gives us the opportunity to have... So this could be a scene very, very early on. Like, for example, when Sauron is being given permission to go ahead and take Minas Tirith. Perhaps as a reward for having it orchestrated the de the final defeat of the men of Dorthoni. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yes. That's, of course, another... Sauron moment that's going to be interesting, which is the invasion of Dorthonian designed to capture Baron alone, right? When Sauron brings like an army to Dorthonian, um, like an army of what and exactly how is that going to work is going to be, I think, an interesting thing. Um, and by the way, of course, we know that Baron is going to be having Shelob encounters on the way uh, south from Dorthonian, and of course having established a pre-existing relationship between Sauron and Shelob, um, we could um, possibly take advantage of that there as well. Um, especially since, by the way, of course, um, you know, uh, Tower Nefuin in Dorthonian is going to become Mirkwood, right? So, um, I'm just saying an invasion of spiders, kind of topical, right? Uh, when it comes to that. So, um, I, it's various things which could occur. Um, uh, yes. Now let's talk about, no, I was going to say Nargothrond. Let's not talk about Nargothrond. Let's talk about the Forest of Brethil instead. Um, one of the big questions is that chronologically during this time is when um, uh, Juvenile, Hurin, and Huor are going to get swept off to Gondolin to hang out with Turgon for a while and then get returned. Um, and this has been a moment that we've been kind of already thinking about and observing the awkwardness of um, I think I don't know what you guys think about this my vote would be to not do that in season 6 at all I think that my vote would be to have that be episode 1 of season 7 to kind of go back it can be a flashback and, yeah. yeah I mean it, it would be a flashback um but yeah, yeah. Doing a, a flashback like that at the beginning of the season to kind of set up what's going to be the story for the further into the season, that's not the same thing as just randomly, here's a flashback about this thing that we're sudden, that's suddenly important right now, you know? Right, right. Yeah, no, so it I would be, it, it, it would be the, to the, the, be, I mean, it would, it would certainly enable a great deal of setting up of the Dagor Braga, or the, sorry, of the Near Nith or Nuidiad. And, um, and in particular, of course, Turgon's decision to come out, right? Um, the whole, one of the major subplots of season seven 
has got to be the gondolindrum, right? The the decision to go in the first place, what happens when they go out, and then who are in and who are protecting them and enabling them to escape back in at the end. Like that's a it's not the only storyline, obviously, but it's a big storyline in season seven. And so it just seems to me that therefore having them in Nargothrond, in Gondolin, I'm doing horrible with my misplacing of names tonight. Having them be in Gondolin uh, in episode one um, would just make all kinds of sense, would be the logical start to that whole plot line, really. I agree that we want Gondolin to appear in, in season seven, episode one. Yeah. Set all that up. And yeah. we want to introduce Heron and Thor as characters in Gondolin at that time because they are going to both be major characters throughout all of season yes. seven. Yes. They, they're going to be fighting in the inner knife and we're going to care a lot about that because we're going to yes. know them. So if we Absolutely. introduce them in season one, in, sorry, in season seven, episode one, and we introduce Turgon and where Gondolin is at that time, we're setting everything up that we need. So yeah. all I think that would be necessary or useful for this season would be to establish that Galdor, who is a character we know, has these two sons, and then suddenly they're gone. And he yes. doesn't know what happened to them, and like it's a little bit of a mystery as to where they went. Like the the disappearance of his sons could be a could be mentioned, yes. Of yes. news or something we do something yeah. with. And then when we show them in Gondolins, like, oh that's what happened to them. Like so that they're not just in Gondolin. Yes. Mm. Why are there these two random human boys in Gondolin? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, right. like, showing, like, it wouldn't hurt to show the flashback back to their initial disappearance either. Um, right. And also, we have we have actually also dropped the information, very offhandedly, dropped the information that his two sons were, in fact, uh, being fostered in breath in breath time of the right. dagger 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 uh yes yes I, I i for whatever reason my brain is fast forwarding to the dagger 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 which is just not we're not yeah. we're not that's not within the purview of right what we're doing we, we might not get there yes exactly um uh yes yeah. Um, no, I agree. I, I think I think that that's that's just right. I too would want to see their disappearance, but I like that if we just establish that they have vanished. Um, I would be perfectly fine actually with having, although their disappearance has to be earlier on, um, to actually start the contemporaneous action of season seven with their return. Basically, when the Eagles bring them back dressed as elven princelings, right? Um, uh, and have that be the thing which kind of kicks off the action of season seven. Um, it, it would be playing with the timeline just a touch, but nothing like we've done before. So uh, that would still be, re- I think, okay. Um, I mean, they're going to have missed the Dagor Bragalak anyway, and it's, you know, 10 years are going to happen during the course of this. Um, it's going to be easy enough to mention that Galdor's sons are missing because we're going to have to check in with Fingon, the new High King. So, Galdor's right there, so that's going to be super easy to have it mentioned that um, that the boys are missing, and um, and then we can just not, you know, maybe we bring it up again later on in the season so people don't forget that we still have two missing human princes somewhere, and then we start with that in season seven. So I think that would be 
the easiest way to handle this situation. Um, so Nargothrond, brief, briefly, um, we have several elements that we're needing to bring about. Getting Oradreth there is going to be easy once, uh, you know, uh, Minas Tirith is taken, right? They're going to have to flee. Gilgalad was there with him, right? Um, so we're going to have him come down, and Oradreth is going to have to decide to send uh, Gilgalad down to um, to Círdan. Um Okay, so, and and having Oradreth then come in and essentially be um, Finrod's heir is easy enough to do, given their relationship. Um, uh, and for again, for new folks, um, we have chosen Oradreth genealogy B, not Oradreth genealogy A, um, not the published Silmarillion genealogy, which has Oradreth as the younger brother of Finrod, but rather um, as his nephew instead. Um, uh, so anyway, yeah, having him there as his heir, I mean, I, Fingolfin is dead, and Fingon is now High King. Um, the, the, the succession need is real, right? So that Finrod would want to establish that Oradreth is his heir, um, I think would be good. And I, we would want that. We would want there to be a sense, like Finrod would have a sense of a, uh, an orderly success, should anything happen to him, that there would be an orderly succession in Nargothrond, which is going to get screwed up by Kurifin, essentially, right? So, um, like, by by having that playing off of the what we established in the last season, right, with this whole elven kings figuring out that having an heir is a good idea business that we did in the... And with Finrod, of course, being at the whole center of the change theme of season five, again, it's a very... It will be very natural for him to you know, have those conversations with Oradreth and with, you know, the members of his household there uh, in Nargothrond, which will therefore make it seem more sketchy and dubious when Kelgorm and Kurufin come in and take over instead. But the question is, why do they come to Nargothrond in the first place, right? Right. They were in Eastville area and for the last two seasons and Feanorians haven't had much to do with West Valerian at all, so we do need to give some pretext as to why they're there. They are refugees from their own lands and on account of um, invasions, but still, why Nargathon? So the only incident that's happening early in the season that would explain things changing is the fall of Minas And Right. Or just people fleeing from Minas Tirith to Nargothrond for safety. So if Caligorm and Curafin are somehow involved in that, that would get them into Nargothrond very naturally. But besides that, they would just have to decide to knock on the door. What um, if they do have? They do have Celebrimbor um, with them. Yes, with them. And he is yeah. very good friends with Oradreth. With Oradreth, yeah. So there is a connection. We just have to figure out how to use this connection to make a story. Yeah. One thing one thing I have been considering was the possibility of um, they leave Eastern Beleriand in disgrace after their their defeat, which was kind of their fault. 
right? Mm -hmm. Like, as far as the way that we've told that story, and, like, they show up uh, back at the Pass of Aglon. Is it the... Aglon, yeah. Anok is the one on the other side, right? The Pass yeah. of Aglon. And Mybros has already retaken it, and he's just like, you're... Superfluous. <laughs> right. Why would I give this back to you? <laughs> right. Come, come back in a few years, and we'll talk. Like, if you guys, there's a lot going on over here, and you're not helpful. So I can see two different things, which could potentially both be happening, by the way. These are not, I think, mutually exclusive. One would be, Nick, what you're suggesting, which is basically Mythros breaks solidarity with the other Fanorians, essentially. That he's like, okay, um, I... You're fired, essentially, which is what he'd be saying to them, right? If he didn't yeah. take them back, if if they don't return to him to help him reinforce and rebuild the defenses in Eastern Beleriand, there's only two reasons why they would not do that, right? One is that they decided they didn't want to be over there, and the other is that Mythros said, "I don't want you over here. I don't need you. I don't want you. Uh, no, thank you." Um, now, there has been friction between Kurafin and Mythros already. Like, we could do some kind of break. It doesn't have to be a permanent break, right? But we could do some kind of rupture between Kelgorm and Kurafin and Mythros that leads them to head east. Um, whether it's them who storm out or Mythros who kicks them out, that's one possibility. But here's the other possibility. The other possibility is that it's strategic, um, when Tal Syrian falls, they know how vulnerable Western Beleriand is. And they could well be thinking, they meaning all of the Feanorians, could well be. Now, we've already established that the Feanorians have a low opinion of the military strength and defensive capabilities of the rest of the Noldar, right? They believe them to be the weak link and the Dagor Bragalak and now the fall of Talsirian have doubly proven that they're right about that, right? Mythros held, um, nobody else held. Um, they could try to rebuild Eastern Beleriand, but what on earth good is that going to do if everybody can just sweep around from the other side, right? If Western Beleriand is wide open, right? So, it would seem like we seem to fit the character, especially of of Kelligorm, of both of them in different ways, right? To say, okay, we have to take matters into our own hands here, right? Obviously, you know, those ninnies, our cousins over there, are perfectly incapable of doing if we're gonna recover any kind of defense of Beleriand, we have to do this ourselves, right? So Mythros, you stay here and shore up Eastern Beleriand, right, like you did before, we'll go over there and we'll take things under control, right? And we will go to the next strongest place. We'll start from the next strongest place that still exists over there, which is Nargothrond, right? Because, I mean, of course, yeah, there's there's Ithil, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, the, the, there's the mountains, there's Fingen, right, and his strongholds. Um, but, you know, like, whatever. They're fine. And anyway, they're also irrelevant now that Tolsirian is taken, right? With the pass open, who cares? M Morgoth can ignore, you know, Hithlum for 
the rest of time, right? Who cares? Um, so what we need to do is we need to get back to plugging that up again. And the strategic thing to do would be to come in and take over the one, you know, we can't do anything about Doriath, right? So we're just going to ignore Doriath as the obstacle in the middle of the, of the map here, both to us and to Morgoth, right? Um, but we're going to go on the other side of Doriath and we're going to shore up, we're going to join ourselves to the strongest place and we're going to, you know, put things in order in Nargothrond. Um, you know, Kelgorm, who thinks a lot of himself as a military leader, right? Kurufin, who is the real, like, political strategist, right? And the truly devious and most arrogant one of all, um, though willing to let Kelgorm be, like, the figurehead, right? He's much more of a, you know, string puller than he is the, you know, I'm going to establish myself as king. Um, so they go to Nargothrond, like, on purpose to not, like, conquer it, right? But to at least influence it, and ideally, sooner or later, they're going to be in charge of the military and can move from there to, like, retake Tolserion and then build a real defensive structure at Tolserion so that we can get now a Feanorian defense on both sides and maybe we can finally get things back ship-shaped down here in southern Beleriand. That's, so that would be a strategic reason for them to go to Nargothrond. Um, as I said, that reason doesn't have to be exclusive to the other one. There can be a rift between them and Mithros. And then Kurofin is like, well, fine. I have another plan anyway. Let's go over here where we can set up our own thing and let Mithros do his own thing over there. And then, you know, we'll worry about him later. You know, so it, that both things could potentially happen. Yeah, Kurofin's plan needs to have ambition. That's part of it. So. Yeah. 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 So what you're saying fits that, and that yeah. I think works pretty well. The idea that Midras has been in charge of the Feanorians all this time, Kurfin has gone along with that. So I don't think yeah. we're quite ready for a we're going to do things my way rebellion on Kurfin's part. No, but but, but no. the major but, problem though was Midras's abdication, right? Exactly. Exactly. They, the Feanorians, should be high king. Mythos didn't want to be high king. Well, okay. But now, so this Fingolfin's would be like a... Fingolfin's dead now, too. So, and, 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 and anyway, and Mythos is still not making him say... Fingolfin's dead and Mythos is still not high king. Right? That right. is it. That is it. We got to do this and, ourselves, obviously. And by Mythos' own criteria that he said... Like, when he said, Fingolfin, you should be king because of X... Mithros is X now. <laughs> he is. He is. Uh, he's he's the eldest. He is the most wise. You know, he is the most experienced. Like, yeah, he totally should be High King. But Mithros, who's best friends with Fingen, is exactly going to challenge Fingen to anything, and Curithid knows this. Exactly. Which is why it could come to a rift, but it might not even have to, right? He and Kelligorm could have a private talk where Kelligorm is saying all of these, maybe Caranthir is there too, right? Saying all these, or maybe Caranthir is still, I don't know where Caranthir is, down with Amros still, you know, uh, uh, in the, you know, anarcho-syndicalist commune down in southern Beleriand. I don't know where he is. But anyway, no, sorry, that's where the, that's with the Green Elves. They have the anarcho-syndicalist commune. Um, but anyway, I, no, it's just the, it's just the hippie outpost of, of, of Amros is what I was thinking of. But anyway, point is, 
Kelligorm and Kurafin, at the very least, right, have this conversation where Kelligorm is saying all these, you know, spicy things about Fingolfin's dead, Mythros should totally be High King, and if not Mythros, one of us, because we don't... And then Kurafin's like, oh, come on, you know, Fingon, Mythros, that is not going to happen, right? Mythros, if this were to come up, Mythros is just going to abdicate again like a loser, right, to his friend Fingon. So, no way. Um... We have to we have to go about this our way, right? We have to we have to do and I have a and I'm Kurafin, so I have a devious plan, right? Um so yeah, I mean I think that works all kinds and reminding everybody about the ab- the abdication and the fact that that's still gonna be a sore point among the Feanorians, right? Um I mean Magor is the only one who kind of puts up with it, right? I mean Karanthir, Kelligorm and Kurafin are still like actively Resentful about the abdication. Right. They're resentful, but going along with it, the death of Fingolfin changes things a little bit, so now they're going to speak up again. Yeah. And then, after the union of Mithros, when Mithros loses that battle, yes. now he yeah. can't just make them do what he says anymore. So right. we will definitely see the breakdown of the Feanorian solidarity yes. post-Nair Knight. So if and... we are showing now how that's going to break up, that's good. So if it's the three of them, Kelligorm, Kurafin, and Karanthir, having this not quite rebellious, but kind of rebellious discussion that has an endpoint that's not a rebellion, but still is a let's go do our own thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that all fits with where yeah. the story's and, going. And you're right, of course, because it's after the failure of the, like, Mythros' last big attempt, right, to do things right. You know, um, Union of Mithros, exactly. Um, that is, when that fails, Mithros is going to lose a lot of stature within, with his brothers, right? Um, they've been listening to him. They've been deferring to him, even though they very actively did not want to do that, even though they have not disagreed with, like, most of his policies. Um, but they've maintained their solidarity and they've gone along. But at that point, they're done. And he's done. And of course one must notice that it is after that point um, that the kinslayings start happening again, right? Yes, um, indeed it is. Yes, yes. So uh, showing how Mithros is no longer driving the Fanorian bus at that point. Um, but but yeah, so it would be really important, I think, for us to set that up um, here in the beginning um, and give them this kind of um, political and military reason to go as... Um, and. Uh, as Captain Button says on Twitch, I, I agree. Having them show up and offer themselves as military advisors, right, um, would be good. Like, I bet they don't have any cavalry at all, clearly, right? In so, he, in Argothrond, right? Yeah. I mean, I, mean they, I don't think they have... Yeah. They, 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 they have they, horses. They have horses, yeah, we've but they don't have cavalry. They have rangers. Right. Who probably, right. some of them have horses, I imagine, yeah. Right. But then, so Kelligorm can come and be like, hey, look, you've got a whole lot of territory to defend. You know what you need? Cavalry. Oh, hi, here I am. Experienced cavalry captain, greatest cavalry leader, uh, you know, in Beleriand. So isn't that nice? So I can help there. You don't talk about that little thing that happened (laughs) with the werewolves. We don't talk about the Pass of Aglon. Yeah, that's right. Uh, But uh, anyway, yeah. Fresh from the defeat of the Pass of Aglon. Exactly. (laughs) We are, uh, we're the greatest cavalry troop. Just don't ask us what we've been doing lately. Um, But um, anyway, yeah. So, um, 
uh, and then and and Kurofin just as advisor because he's like totally chill and back stage, right? He's not putting himself forward. Kurofin never puts himself forward uh, for anything because he's way too devious for that, right? Yeah, no, no one in East Valerian calls themselves a king. Like, right. Neither is Lord of Himring, but he, you know, he's not the king. Right. Finrod's a king. Fingon's right. a king. Kurofin and Kelegorm, they would like to be kings too. <laughs> right, right. That seems like <laughs> a good... Can we just uh, be a king? I just want something right. to be king of. <laughs> right. It seems like a nice gig. Yeah. Is, is anybody signing up to be subject to me? <laughs> That's right. That that's right. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I, I have a, exactly. I have a, I have Car- a. Karen there just assumes that everyone wants to be a subject. Right. Exactly. Which is why he has so few. <laughs> exactly. Um, what are we going to do with Karen By the way, he's going to get back into keep Helivorn after the dragon's gone. Oh. He's, and he's got his relationship with the dwarves. We probably have a dwarf storyline to tell because this is the Lucian well, story. I mean, with the Silmaril and everything, like we we do need dwarves around. Yeah. Oh, speaking of dwarves, the Nagwamir. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, since on the subject of dwarf storylines, um, we have uh, postponed the Nagwam the Nagwamir a couple times, haven't we? Um, we sure have. We sure have. Yeah. It's um time for the Nauglamir. We have to have the Nauglamir now, or it won't have anything to do with Finrod at all. Um, right. Right. Yes. So, the Nauglamir idea that we had many seasons ago was uh-huh. that we wanted to introduce the character of Gemelzerak, not as old Zerak, but as young, up-and-coming Zerak, as a <laughs> dwarf from... Nograd, right. who would make this masterpiece. And then, when Fingal does this whole thing, he invites the original artisan to come and add the Silmaril to the necklace. So it's the actual dwarf who made the Naglamir in the first place who's also making the Naglamir for Fingal. That was the original idea back in season three when we talked three about Three or that. something? Yeah, 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 it was a long um, time ago. So the question is if you still like that idea. <laughs> Well, I do generally, though. Of course, we're running out of time to age him uh, when it comes to that. Oh, he'll be old enough. It'll, it'll be fine. He'll be, it'll be fine because it's not all that long until the fall of Doriath. I mean, Domino starts. It's long enough. He's, yeah, it's, it's long enough. He can be a young dwarf and then be an aged dwarf later. It's fine. Okay. Okay. Um, the yeah. alternative is that. We do the story that is not in the published Silmarillion, where the Naglamir is created at the same time. As now, oh, when the Silmaril, when he has the Silmaril, so right. it's when, he commissions it from scratch. Thingol commissions right. it from scratch. Yeah. Right now, of course, this has the problem of now the dwarves don't really have any claim on the Naglamir whatsoever. Like, I mean, they made it sure, but yeah, if it's like this historyed thing that they made and gave to Finrod and now it was stolen from Finrod and then you have it because the thief who stole it from the thief who stole it from Finrod gave it to you like you have no claim on it whatsoever right what is this right. you all, this whole object that we have created you have no claim on any of it right what if what if we introduce it what if we don't 
show it being made. What if Finrod is just wearing it in Nargothrond? And because here's what I'm saying, because Nick, what was making me think of this was what you were just saying about the the claim of the dwarves, right? One of the things we want to establish at this point in order to set up the Thingol story later on is that the Nauglamir is a cultural icon in Nagrod, right? Like, it is one of the most... Like, the, the, the Nauglamir is not quite but close to what the Arkenstone is to Thorin's house, right? Uh, and I say not quite because, you know, I mean, it's like super possessive, and of course somebody else owns it, right? The Nauglamir. So, but it's the greatest work of craft um, that, the, you know, that of all of the, you know, the jewel smiths of, uh, of Nagrod, everyone agrees this is the greatest thing that has ever been made. I would think there would be like regular pilgrimages from Nar- Nagrod to Nargothrond to see the Nauglamir. Like this would happen, right? If it's the great... So th- that's what I'm thinking. In that context, we could introduce it. Like there could be dwarves who come. Um... You know, with like, uh, you know, little audio tour soundtracks and stuff to see the Nauglamir, um, you know, because it's this incredibly famous thing. And they can be talking about, you know, oh, like the craftsmanship of, you know, the, and the, you know, and they can, so they can name the craftsmen and they will speak in these odd tones about this. We, we see dwarves weeping, right? Looking at the Nauglamir and, um, um, you know, uh, maybe even, you know, Finrod would, like, let them touch it, right? And so, like, they'd be, like, holding the Nauglamir, shaking, right, and weeping, and, uh, like, just to, to establish what this means to them. Like, this is the greatest thing ever. This is the most... Im- and, uh, you know, they could, we, you know, and we can have them talking about how, like, they've looked forward to this their entire lives. Like, we've always wanted to come and see this. You know, this is, like, we've been hearing for, you know... Uh, whatever, a hundred years about uh, this thing, and we've always wanted to come see it, and now I can, you know, return and die in peace because I've seen the the Nauglamir, right? If if the Nauglamir's been around for hundreds of years at this point, then the dwarf who made it is dead. Uh, Well, it doesn't have to be hundreds, but it could be like a century, you know, 150 years, no? Or he'll be be dead by the time. Yeah, then he'll be dead by the time we need him as a character. So, How long is it going to be? When's the fall of Doriath? Wait, like wait a minute. Something. Five something. The elves not understand that dwarves die. That dwarves die still. So, right. like, if they summon Gamel, you know, like Gamel Zirak, and Gamel Zirak shows up, and it's a young, like, like, like it's a young guy, they may not even pick up on the fact that it's not the same person. Like it, I mean, it would have there would have to be established in dialogue between the dwarves themselves, right? But they the like Thingle wouldn't know. Yeah, and yet to answer Ilana's question here, yes, the reason Finrod has it is that it was commissioned from his jewels. What makes and this is like it's like it's the foreshadowing of the thing with the Silmaril, right? He has all of these gems, these brilliant and shining gems that he's brought with him from Valinor. So the idea of the dwarves building this gorgeous necklace from the gems that Finrod... So Finrod owns it. He commissions it. He pays them to make it, right? Um, 
Or he could give them something. Would he give them something else? Is there another gift he would give? Um, we showed him giving gems to the dwarves who helped him build Nargothrond back in season four. Mm-hmm. So he has given gifts to those dwarves. But those dwarves were from Belagosk because those were uh, Norn's people. Right, right. So we and they were actually, builder dwarves anyway. Not, and they were builder, right. Yeah, yeah. We haven't shown any connection between Nogrod and any of the elven kingdoms yet really we, we right. introduced nograd with ale and there was a there was some clear indication that belagos and nograd interact with each other right but nograd itself doesn't really have a relationship with any of these kingdoms and therefore we haven't shown anything with nargothrond and nograd right right um so okay so let me let me see if i can kind of construct this the so Finrod gives his gems out pretty freely to the to the dwarves of Belagos. Mm-hmm. Well, those gems, a good amount of them, have probably found them th- their way into the hands of the Nogrod at this point, right? Of, of right. the the dwarves of Nogrod, right? And so, it's not unreasonable to think that early in the season. A the dwarves of Nogrod attempting to make in inroads with uh, with Finrod would show up with this necklace that was made with gems that they acquired um, that are originally from Finrod's hoard, and to restore it to him, this great thing that they made a hundred years ago, right? Made by the great. Uh, Gamal Zirak, who was, you know, the, our finest jeweler, um, and to show that kind of reverence early on, um, because we're not going to actually pay off the um, the the Naglamir story in this in this season. This could just be something that's happening as background to, for example, the arrival of Kelogorman Kurifin. Like yeah. They arrive when this is happening because it shows Finrod's largest, largest, if that's how you pronounce that, the it way is, yeah. his, his, the way that his treatment of everybody around him has reached all the way out to Nagrod and is bringing him allies yeah. nobody had really deeply considered before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the biggest problem I have, though, there's no way if they made the Naglamir back home, they're not going to give it back of their own free will. They're not just going to be like, hey, we thought you should have this. Right. Unless I mean, unless I, they're trying to open up their they're, they're even trying then, to would they, I mean, deal like, with him. This is the their greatest thing of all time. Like this is the you know, this is the it like, works better if you commission it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's I, again, they would be. What I mean, what would solidify their connection is him having it in the first place, right? Because then they'd be coming all the time, um, and and it would it would and they wouldn't need to, in a sense. The Gamalzirek would have been referred to Finrod by his other dwarf friends, right? Like mm-hmm. Norn's people would be like, "Oh, 
you want a really nice necklace made, we know just the folks, right? You really want to talk to the, some of the Nogrod folks. You've not met them before, but we can introduce you. And they're like, they're the jewel folks. They're, they're the, they're the, uh, they're the metal workers. You, you, you really, you'll really like their work, right? So they bring in young, uh, Gamal Zirek and he makes the, um, he makes the Nagwamir for Finrod. And that would begin a, like, long-term relationship between Finrod and the dwarves of Nogrod. Because, again, they would be coming on pilgrimages and there would be other things. I mean, he would have other gems that he would want to uh, be, um, you know, set and other beautiful things that he would want made um, in Nargothrond. Um, And he is, Nick, as you say, he is generous, right? And he is... Um, uh, he is kind. Um, it would be interesting. I mean, even just watching him interact with the dwarves um, who came on pilgrimage would be an opportunity to show Finrod's kindness, right? Um, I don't know. I kind of like the dwarvish pilgrimage idea. But um, but anyway, I don't know. I, but I don't, my, my biggest point is that I don't think we need to have the, we need to shoehorn the like the making of the Nauglamir into this season necessarily. I think it can have happened, and so I'm trying yeah. to think about ways in which, um, in which it can be brought in. And as you say, Nick, we're not paying it off right away. Like it's not important in this. Um, it's not important in this season really at all. Um, apart from the fact that we want to make sure everybody knows it exists before Finrod goes away. So it's in some way associated with him. Right. I mean, that's, that's why we're talking about it as part of the very beginning right. of, Hey, what, what needs to be in season six? Exactly. Um, as for what it shows about Finrod as a leader, it shows his ability to make friends with everybody and form these alliances. Yes. Which is going to be in contrast to anything Fanorian. So that is an important aspect of the, conflict between Finrod, Oradrek, and Gilgalad versus Telegram and Turrican. I'm seeing this... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing Finrod interacting with dwarves, like my, the pilgrimage dwarves that I'm imagining coming in, right? As part of a before and after sequence for Nargothrond, right? Mm-hmm. And so that we can help to see the Feanorian logic stands to some extent. Like, there is a logic to what they're saying. Like, they are good at military stuff. They are good at defensive fortifications. There might be, if things went well, right, some kind of advantage to having them in Western Beleriand and assisting with the war efforts over there if they played nicely with others, right? Um, But we will be able to show what you're losing by downgrading from Finrod to from Finrod in peace and harmony to Kurufin and Keligorm divisive and um you know wrecking everything as far as exactly. the political alliances and everything are concerned. Yeah, um so that's probably how the dwarves fit into this. Yeah, yeah, just to sh- just as a simple illustration of what Finrod does really well as ruler, what makes him a good king, even if Kelgrim and Kurofin look down on them. And again, 
it's not that there's no justification for what the Feanorians think about the others, right? They're not completely correct, but they're not totally wrong either. Um, and yet it will enable us to show that and also in the course of doing so establish the existence of the, um, of the Nuglamir and, um, I'm even kind of imagining, like, as I say, I think Finrod, if dwarves came to see it, he would he would let them, he would let them hold it, he would let them put it on. Like he wouldn't be, you know, he doesn't like, lock it up in his hoard. He doesn't lock it up in his hoard, right? He would be generous. He would be, you know, appreciate that they also, and you know, he would be standing there and like admiring it with them and being like, yes, it's amazingly cool. beautiful, you know. Does he wear it? whenever he's receiving Dwarvish visitors? I don't think he necessarily wears it routinely. Uh, in right. fact, or maybe he, when Dwarvish visitors come, he doesn't wear well, it on purpose, right? So as they, to be able to sort of show it to them more commu- and not be like flaunt, you know, like flaunting it in their direction necessarily. So there's a question, and it didn't come up when we uh, talked about the... Um, the ban, uh, but originally the ban was supposed to include a ban on the wearing of jewels. Now, right. that kind of slipped under the radar. That that wasn't said. Kind of did. Kind of did. Um, but I feel like, like, are we abandoning that or are we not? <laughs> Or is that something we need to figure out next? <laughs> well, it is getting late. We should probably, that, and we can't answer every question here in the first right, episode. Yeah. Um, lobbing that out there as an open question. As yeah, saying. that is that is a good thing to keep in mind. The other thing I, I, I was thinking, um, uh, Octoburn86 was just saying that Turin finds a dwarven war mask in Nargothron. Maybe there's some connection there. Um, yeah, actually setting up Turin's, uh, uh, Turin's, mask even if uh the like the masked helm that is that turin will eventually wear were to be given as a gift to finrod in one of these scenes as well like cause they they could come those the pilgrims the dwarf could come bearing gifts right and maybe that's one of the gifts that they and of course finrod would be extremely polite right but none of them would want wear that thing right like it's not going to be something they're actually but you know he'd set it aside and it would be there and then Turin could find it later on. I think it's it's true. I mean, we're going to we're going to have this prop that's going to dwarvish prop that's going to show up in Nargothrond uh that Turin is going to wear. Um so uh yeah. Yeah. Cuz he's already lost the dragon helm by that time, right? Yeah. Well, it'll, that'll depend how we do turns. <laughs> yeah. There's right. a few variations on Turin's story that <laughs> There are open questions at this time. There are. And that is way beyond what we're going to discuss this evening. All right. Um, With that, we have begun talking about... So in this session, we have succeeded in talking about the things that we need to talk about. Uh, uh, We haven't made too many decisions, um, but we have, uh, uh, I think, touched on most of the biggest questions that we we need to resolve. And I feel prepared to go back and address some of these other things. There are some 
some other issues that we didn't raise, questions like, for instance, the nature of magic. How are we going to handle that? When Luthien starts singing and doing stuff, what are we going to do? What are we going to have her do? How are we going to handle Luthien's hair? Right? That's, a, that's an issue that we have to deal with. What's, what's Luthien's hair going to be up to on screen? Her cloak of shadows. What's up with that? Right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we're just told is wondrous and magical in the text. And we've got to show it on screen. Um, and, uh, you know, how are we going to do that? So there's, uh, there's, that's another issue that we're going to come back and talk to. So, um, uh, so we wanted to welcome everybody to join us in these discussions. Uh, if you've never participated uh, in some film discussions before, now would be a great time uh, to jump in. Uh, you can go to our discussion boards. Could you, uh, Marie, remind us of the basic web address of the discussion boards, like just the, the main address? Oh, it's uh, forums. It's, Wait a minute. Let me yeah. Look at it. <laughs> forums.signumuniversity.org, right? Forums.signumuniversity.org. I can right. share the link um, Great. to the uh, to the post that has the some film Bible link in it, which will also go. have nice. the link to the um, to the forums themselves. So, absolutely, yeah. So um, we invite folks to jump in on those forums. So yeah, go to forums.signumuniversity.org. You'll see the Silmarillion Film Project uh, forums there. Um, a lot of the uh, discussions and the, the 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 hard work you could get involved in helping with the uh, uh, with the script planning and script writing process. There are lots of other creative ways to get involved. We have people who help with visual design, um, whether it be props or costumes or sets. Um, we have people. Who, uh, we have, of course, uh, Philip Menzies, who leads our musical team, um, doing uh, musical compositions and working through the score and stuff. Um, there's all kinds of things that we have going on in the film film project. We always welcome new creative minds who would like to jump in uh, and help us uh, with this uh, process as we're going through. It is more fun with more people involved. So um, we will be working towards our episode by episode season outline. That's kind of, when we get there, that's when we know we're done with <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, uh, the pre-production part of uh, uh, season six. Um, we will continue to discuss um, some of these, uh, the issues that we've raised um, uh, to make some decisions about how we're going to do things so that then we can proceed to planning and working out some of the details. Um, but join us next time. So our next session will be two weeks uh, from now, so that'll be on the what does that make it? The 16th I think of December um, if I'm doing my math properly in my head. Yes, Thurs- yes that's right. Okay, Thursday yes. the 16th of December we will be back for session number two um, and we look forward to seeing you then, so thanks for joining everyone, and I will say as always thanks for listening, and Godspeed.